welcome to the broadcast. It's my joy to have Dr. Jim Coakley on the podcast today. Jim and I go back to our time at the Moody Bible Institute, where he has taught now for over 25 years. He teaches both in the seminary and the undergraduate schools. He's married to Gail. They've got two adult kids, three grandchildren. The joy of life, right? He is a frequent tour leader to Bible lands, as well as a featured guest on many Moody radio programs. He contributed to both the Moody Bible Commentary, which, by the way, Hannah, we should put that in the show notes. This is a great tool for you to purchase. And the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, which Jim and our friend Michael Rodelnik had a lot of involvement in putting those two together. So they're great resources for you. But Jim and I were in Israel. What year would that have been? 2000... 2006, I think. 600 and some people with us, and it was... Uh, yeah, that was a major, what, 13 buses? 13 buses and no sleep. Yeah, yep. but we, we had a great time. <laughs> but Jim has come out with a new book, and as always, we are always on the lookout for not just authors and interviews, but things that are going to help you grow. And Jim's book is called 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible. And one of the things this book's about, Dr. Coakley, it's not a Bible study methods book. You're approaching this a little differently. So give folks, okay, why one more book about how to read the Bible, Jim? Well, there's plenty of good Bible study methods kind of books out there. You know, Howard Hendricks' book and Living by the Book and a number of others. Uh, Grasping God's Word is another one that's very common. So there's plenty of how to do kind of general Bible study, observation, interpretation, application. So that's not what I wanted to do with this book. What I have found is that even though the Bible is the most read book in all the world, sadly, it's not often read well. We don't really give people strategy on how to go about reading it with a lens, a strategy to kind of say, what should I be looking for as I read? So we just kind of, what I become, what I call a passive reader. We just kind of let the the text come into our mind and we don't really engage or dialogue with what we're seeing or ask questions as to why it is this way instead of this way. Yeah, just over the years, I've uh, come up with some very basic strategies that are really easily attainable for anybody that opens up God's Word and just kind of say, here's what you should be looking for as you read God's Word. And the very kind of fun labels uh, for some of these techniques, Mm -hmm. but I think very practical and very helpful to get at what the author is trying to communicate. You know, one of the things counselors often say is pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And one of the things I say to myself when I preach the Bible, what are you trying to do to these people? (laughs) And I like your first chapter, First Impressions. You talk about, I'm just going to read some of the headings and we can take a minute to look at some of those, but summary. In First Impressions technique, the reader is to identify what the biblical author shares about a character's first words, first actions, and any physical descriptors. I'll never forget, Jim, a friend of mine, Ken Vogus, and one of the things he said, when you read the Bible, look at behavior, not just content and vocabulary and word studies. And that's a real different lens for some of us that were trained in seminary. What are they doing? Right. So you pick up on that right away. First words, first actions, physical descriptors. Can you share one that was like a big surprise to you in your own Bible study? Wow, I never saw that he or she did this. Well, I mean, I think we think about major characters, and this also works with minor characters as well. 
I think David sure. probably struck me the most. You know, David, of course, is anointed in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and then we have him fighting Goliath in chapter 17. So we see him doing a number of things in those first couple chapters. We see him as a shepherd. Then at the end of that chapter, we see him as a musician in Saul's court. Then the next chapter, we see him as a warrior fighting Goliath. And I'm thinking, huh, that's interesting. Out of all the pieces of information, the story arc of David shares those three, in a sense, occupations, as it were. And that is so fitting for David the rest of the way. He's a shepherd. We think of shepherds as leaders, and that's what he is. We think of him as a musician, which he is because he writes many of the Psalms. And we think of him as a general, as a leader of the armies. And so right away, the first actions we see David doing are going to really be a, a job description of David the rest of the way. But what's also intriguing is that we never hear him speak in chapter 16, even though, of course, we know that he does in real life. But the first time we hear him textually speaking with his own voice, with his own words, is a very intriguing statement that he makes when he goes to the battlefield. And, of course, we all think about David being a man after God's own heart. But the first words that come out of his mouth are, what's the reward? What's in it for the guy who kills this guy? And then, then <laughs> how, can about it, that. how yeah. can it be that this guy's you know, his head is still on his shoulders because he's defying the army of the living God? But see, notice, it's a perfect scenario, snapshot of David, yeah. because he's selfish. He's in it for himself, like Bathsheba. But then he's also a man after God's own heart. And so it's a beautiful blend of warts mm. and all, David, good traits, bad traits, and that initial snapshot that we see of David, even through his own words, is just remarkable. I heard a, a pastor this past Sunday, he preached a section of David's life, but I had never made this observation. He said, second to Jesus Christ, David is the most cited man in the Bible. And his hook was, you know, he was the one in Second Samuel 7 that was seated on the throne. There would always be a messianic throne. And he's the son of David then, of course. Anyway, it was interesting little hook. But see, that's the thing, because he's such a, a big, what we call round character in literary terms. Yeah. And so the author of that life of David is really taking a very precautionary selected stories that just kind of yeah. make sure that you get the good first impression. And you talk about in your book about, oh, I call the big A, little A, the big A author, the little A author working in concert. And we may or may not get into that. Let's move ahead. One of the things you talk about is the value and the payoff. So as I'm reading your book going, okay, there's a payoff, Jim. Yeah. There's always a payoff because like, and even this first impressions technique, it helps you to understand in the sense, the humanness of the characters that we're reading about, because we get to see what they do, what they say. And in terms of characterization, that reveals what motivates them, what's in their heart. And so we can always uh, kind of track what's going on with that by looking at this. And so, yeah, it's not necessarily going to be the spiritual theme or big idea, but it's going to help you to kind of engage and enter into the incarnational reality that these people were real people, had real experiences, made great moves, and sometimes fell flat on their face, but just like you and I do. Let's go on to some of your chapter titles because this will give folks a flavor of your book. Uh, so we talked about first impressions briefly. Read the labels, step up to the mic, launching pad, beautiful bookends, object lessons, poetic diamonds. And then my wife's chapter is a realtor, location, 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 
Let me stop right there for a moment. I want to go to step up to the mic, chapter three of your book. Give folks a, a little taste of what this is about. Yeah, here's a good example of something. It's a very basic thing, but it really has revolutionized my reading of the Bible, especially when I'm reading narrative texts, is here's the recommendation. Look for quotation marks. Nobody ever told me that. I've never read that in any Bible study methods book. But look for quotation marks because what's happening is, and that's why I call it step up to the mic, oftentimes the author is the one controlling the account. But every once in a while, he'll allow the characters within the story to speak. And that's when you see the quotation marks. So we call it direct speech. And so that's a choice that the authors make as to whether or not they, in a sense, control the narrative or whether they allow you to hear a character within the story speak with their own heart, their own words. And so it is amazing how often the main ideas even are, in a sense, found on the voice of one of the characters within the story. You know, I think of just even like at the crucifixion, the Roman centurion, surely this was a son of man. Well, we get to hear it from the lips of a Gentile observer. He got it. Sadly, many of his own disciples didn't, but this guy got it. And so we hear his own words say that. And so time and time again, the idea that the the words reflect what's in their heart, but also I know, especially the gospel of Luke, all the big ideas that I've been able to discern there in those accounts all come on the lips of one of the characters within the story. It's almost like Mm. telegraphed. Follow the quoted material and you'll be right close to the theme that the gospel writer is trying to do. And that that's payoff right there for anybody who's reading yeah. or speaking. Well, again, for folks that are just listening to this, Jim Coakley has kind of a, you call it a framework because you talk about summary, prevalence, instruction, value, payoff challenges, and you use this repetitively through the book. Let me step back and ask a better question. How does this help the reader? Yeah, one of the things I'm trying to do is just what readers recognize that the Bible is great literature, but, but sadly, some people, when they hear that, say, well, it's fictional. No, it can be historical and true, but it also can be great writing. And so I try to give examples in every chapter of how these techniques are found in all good literature and film. So these are just good oral communication skills or written communication skills. And so I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just trying to surface what's already there. Uh, So I'm not trying to read between the lines. These are just the ways to do it. And so I basically say how often, how prevalent, how common are these things. A lot of these techniques will admittedly be found more in the narrative books because these are more literary narrative kind of things. But that's a good chunk of the Bible right there. But then, too, some of the techniques work in in basically any book. A lot of the techniques are not just for narrative style books like Genesis or Matthew or whatever. Talk a little bit bit about launching pad. You say this technique involves looking closely at the content situated at the beginning of a Bible book because the material serves as a base. It's such a trajectory for the theme of the book. And as you're thinking about what you're going to say, when I read that, my mind went to Exodus because I still remember back in seminary when we were doing Exodus in Hebrew with Dr. Alan Ross We all had to exegete the first chapters, I recall, and then we were assigned sections for our 30-page paper. And I'll never forget going through that first chapter and realizing this is an outline for the entire book of Exodus. Right here in chapter 1, 400 years and change after Genesis 
chapter 50 ends and we pick up this narrative that we know too well, right? So that's a one I picked up on early in life. Others and help people see this that's like kind of mind-blowing. You get these summaries. Oh, it sure is. And that's the, what you discovered in seminary is basically, sadly, it's not really a technique we think about is pay attention to the upfront material because they're not, in a sense, randomly, chaotically writing these biblical books. Uh, they have a goal, intent, purpose, design with it. And so now they don't have the same types of things we do today, like a table of contents or a foreword or whatever that let people know. But they certainly would, in a sense, front load key ideas, notions, themes in the early material of a book. And so if you pay extra attention to that, not that you, you want to pay attention to all texts, but if you pay extra attention, it helps set you up for what, like as you described, what are the themes? What are the things that are really going to drive the rest of the book? I am amazed how often I see it. I see it with Isaiah. The story of Cain and Abel, to me, sets up not just Genesis, but sets up the rest of the Pentateuch. You have sibling rivalry, okay, Cain and Abel. Sibling rivalry is all throughout the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel's story sets that up. You have the idea of, you know, how do they know what to bring as a worship sacrifice? You know, there's no instructions given there, but stay tuned. The whole thing of Leviticus is going to tell you what animal sacrifices are all about. So it's priming the pump. It's setting up the reader for later content. Also, the idea of doing right. Cain is told to do right. Well, what's doing right? You got the laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And then here's the clincher. Cain is worried he's become a restless wanderer on the earth as a result of his sin. What book of the Pentateuch do we have that talks about restless wandering as a result of sin? The whole book of Numbers. And so that story is a true story, Cain and Abel. It actually happened, but it also double dips as a literary theological theme preface for the rest of the Pentateuch. Powerful stuff. And again, we talked about this in another setting that human nature hasn't changed, you know, from the sibling rivalry of Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau and all the way down to, you know, your kids and mine, the positioning and the power of, you know, oldest and smartest and most athletic and best looking and whatever that just seems to be hardwired in all of us. Well, here's the cherry on top. That's the first human account we have after the fall. Two brothers not getting along and the question of yep. I'm my brother's keeper. Why does Moses front load that in all of the Pentateuch? Well, where are they when they receive this information? They're on the plains of Moab about to enter in. And what's already happening? The tribes are saying, hey, we're fine. We don't want to go over with the others. And so basically, this is, this is subtle, but I think very powerful, is that basically Moses is teaching the tribal brothers, they are their brother's keeper, go over with your, with your fellow uh, countrymen and take the land as, as you are required to do. You are your brother's keeper. And so it's not just a story about sibling rivalry, but it's also got a sermonic kind of edge to it for the audience in Moses' day, but also for us today. Human nature has not changed. No. Let's talk about some other examples of this launching pad. Uh, I mentioned Exodus. What are some other ones that stand out to oh, you? The one of Isaiah stands out big time. If you just read the first two chapters of Isaiah, and while you're reading those two chapters, think through, okay, already, if you already have some basic understanding of Isaiah, you're going to see words, phrases, themes that are going to be all over it. Because 
you know, a lot of times people bifurcate Isaiah, the first Isaiah, second Isaiah. No, the first two chapters are already talking about people streaming to the hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord, and all the nations are going to come, which is really the theme of the second half. You have the Holy One of Israel. You hearken back to even Genesis because it talks about heavens and earth. It talks about, you know, having our sins forgiven. So all the themes really that Isaiah is wanting to unpack in greater detail later are all kind of breadcrumbed right there in those first couple of chapters. It's it's his table of contents in my thinking for what he's going to cover the rest of the way. Let me take a sidebar here on Isaiah because Isaiah is an intimidating book yes. for most Christians. I remember early in my Christian life reading through the Bible programs. I used the Robert Murray McShane one yeah. for years. But Isaiah, even more so than the Pentateuch, it was a slog as well as Jeremiah. And before I tell you how I worked through it, I'm interested in how Dr. Coakley would tell a reader, you know, how do you get through these massive tomes that seem to be repetitive and dreary? And Well, I took a Hebrew exegesis course of Isaiah when I was in seminary. And I remember hearing uh, Dr. Averbeck, who taught the class, he said, there is as much vocabulary in just the book of Isaiah as all the Greek New Testament. And so the idea of learning really to sight-read Isaiah is a pipe dream for most of us who even study Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, about 100 people yeah, in, about the 100 people maybe, in the United States, maybe. Because there's so many rare words or infrequently used words that it's yeah. hard to become just a sight-reader of that. But what I always say is, with the prophets, you need help. You get as much help as you can because you have to understand history. You have to understand how prophets work. Prophets are really rhetorical. We read them in written form, but most of them were orators that were well-polished, good communicators. They use a lot of lyric material and poetic material. And also, they could be a little uh, sarcastic. They could be cutting because uh, they're really trying to box the ears of the people who have just uh, tuned out the word of the Lord. And so they have to you know, kind of do whatever it takes to kind of grab people's attention to, to get them to go back to Deuteronomy. And that's the other thing with the prophets. You can't read the prophets apart from Deuteronomy. They are always hearkening back. And that's why the Lord sends them is because uh, I call them doctors and Deuteronomic. They come when the nation is sick. That's when you see the prophets. And they're Deuteronomic. They're always writing the same prescription. Read Deuteronomy. Live by Deuteronomy. Live the law. Time and time again, sadly, we see the people aren't, the kings aren't, and they pay the consequences of that. But they keep calling them back to what the standard is. You know, I found in my own devotional life, and the bane probably of being a pastor teacher is that you are always thinking about the next message. And so it's really hard to just read the Bible and you know, have a devotion and ruminate on it and memorize some verses and, okay, what's God teaching me in this? And one thing I have done, and you talked about getting help, is I've tried to find three commentaries for each book, one being what we call a critical or more technical, one being more expositional, and one that's a devotional. For example, a Warren Wearsby Mm -hmm. or somebody that's light reading. And depending on if I have a schedule or a goal, it's really helpful just to flip through and see how they organized it. You know, like, like you organized yours with a framework and you repeat that again and again. Authors in the Bible do that, but we can't see that typically right. with just a pad and a pen. Would you agree, disagree? Oh, no, Is that I totally a crutch? Agree. You know, you need to kind of like, I like those three different tiers of uh, the level of uh, commentaries that you go for. Uh, one of the things I always recommend, I recommend it highly in the book, 
just read large swatches of text because sometimes yes. you don't really see the overall flow of what the biblical book is trying to do. And like you, uh, pastor teachers, you know, we're just one text, one passage, one chapter ahead of the congregation sometimes. And that's not necessarily healthy because if you don't understand no, the whole not. while you're going through the parts, it's no wonder <laughs> most sermons are standalone units without really ever feeling uh, like they're really exposing yep. the whole theme of what the book is all about. You know, it's funny you say that over the years of, you know, I guess 40 of teaching, I've often thought every time I finish a book, and I've even said this on occasion, I need to do it again, because now I kind of understand yeah. it. <laughs> well, I remember G- after being 10 months a year. G.K. Morgan <laughs> said this, he never would preach a book until he read it 50 times in English. Wow. And I think wow. that's the level of dedication we need, because that's going to keep you from going you know, a, yeah. a wrong if you understand, oh, this fits here, this fits here. and uh, But that... That's a tall order, especially for people like Isaiah. It would be, but if it's your job, it's right. you know, what you're about. I mean, you're paid to study. Yep. It's not a bad gig if you can get yep. it, right? That's for sure. Um, let's talk about bookends. Yeah. You this talk one about beautiful is, bookends. Yeah, this one is really fun. Uh, the technical term for it, and that's why I, I try to introduce at times the technical terms, but I try to make it very sure. accessible, is that this is what is called inclusios. And basically what they are is the content is framed by similar statements. And the poster child example of that is Matthew's gospel. Here we have his name should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then you fast forward to the last chapter and you have Jesus up on a high mountain giving the great commission. And what does he say? Lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. And so the God's presence theme is at the beginning, is at the end. And so it helps us to understand then that one of Matthew's themes, goals, is to highlight, foreground, the presence of God. And so right away, that bookend kind of provides a sense of closure coming full circle. Uh, And so rhetorically, it is very satisfying, but it's also the payoff is that it helps you to identify themes because of the big A authors and the little A authors are doing this, Mm -hmm. that lets you know that you're tracking what they're really interested in. And that to me is worth it for personal reading, but also for especially communicating God's word or whatever vehicle you are doing it in. Was it Spurgeon who said, no one ever outgrows the scriptures or Barnhouse, it widens and deepens with our years. When you talked about inclusio, I was thinking about chiasms, merisms, couplets in the, especially I'm teaching through Proverbs right now, marking sandwiches, all these things that we put handles on. And once you see them for the first time, it's like, Yep. A lot of wall, joy, discovery. Wow, that's incredible. Yep. That's exactly what he said over here. And it starts to put the supernatural of this book in front of you. It's not just a piece of literature. This is the very word of God. That's what I, I'm also trying to kind of introduce people to, because we often are so micro-oriented in our Bible reading. But to, to realize that there mm-hmm. is also not just beauty and design in you know the way that a, a chapter or a paragraph is laid out, but it's also in the way the whole thing is laid out, both on the book level, on the canon level, and even the whole Bible. I mean, even you talk yes. about a, a very impressive bookend is how the first chapters of Genesis mirror the last chapters of Revelation. New heavens, new earth. We have, yep. again, things, there's no seas there. Well, we had waters created in chapter one. And so clearly there is a, an inclusio, a bookend with the entire canon. 
And what's in the middle, of course, uh, not necessarily in the middle lexically, but topically is Jesus because he's the center of all the creation. Let's move on to in the next section, objects or props in the Bible. This one, a lot of people, when I talk about it, they're kind of shocked because we don't think that the biblical authors are are using objects in the way that I am trying to uh, let readers be at least be thinking about. So for instance, each of the major patriarchs in Genesis have an object, a prop associated with them. Abraham, it's trees. Everywhere you go, he's planting trees, he's in trees, oaks of Moray, Mamre, Machpelah, Oh, why all letter M words? I don't know. That's kind of coincidental, perhaps. Uh, but trees. <laughs> we have Isaac. There's only one chapter, chapter 26, where he's on his own. He's always under the shadow of his father or, or overshadowed by his son. But there's one chapter, he's by himself, and there's one object associated with Isaac, to be in that chapter, and that's wells. And then stones or rocks in Jacob's life, and then clothes in Joseph's life. Why don't we read about clothes in Jacob's life? Why don't we read about rocks in Abraham's life? No, they seem to be an intentional kind of sidekick to these characters, but they infuse it with a little bit of, we say, metaphoric kind of meaning, because Abraham is the father of faith. He's setting down roots in the land. He's got the acorns and growing. So a tree is a fitting analogy to kind of coincide his story arc with. How about Isaac? Wells, he's a child of promise. Everything he does in the land is bountiful, is fruitful. I mean, he plants, it gets a hundredfold increase. He digs a little tiny hole in the Negev desert and out comes lots of water. And so he's the child of promise. He's associated with the Abrahamic promise and land and blessing. And we see that in his life. And then Jacob, I love what he says to Pharaoh at the end of his life. The years of my life have been long and hard. It's like, man, what could be any harder than a rock. And Jacob, all throughout his life, is encountering rock after rock after rock. And that's a perfect analogy, fitting metaphor, his life. And then Joseph. Again, we all think about the, you know, multicolored tunic or the long sleeve tunic, whatever. But throughout his life, he he changes robes. He changes garments. And those are transitional markers in Joseph's life. And so just like we have different wardrobes in our closet for different affairs, Joseph changes clothes, lets us know that he undergoes a lot of different transitions. So is it the main point? No, but it's it's interesting that infused with these stories are these objects that kind of co- sure. coincide with the character themselves. Didn't he stock the brothers? Yep. He gave them changes of clothes, yeah, didn't and he? he gave Benjamin 10, or, 10 clothes changes because yes. he wants to see if his brothers will throw Benjamin under the bus like they threw him under the bus. And so he's using it as a test. And so he's going back to the original scene of the crime, as it were, and reproducing that scene and seeing if the brothers have changed. And or if they put it together was my suspicion. Right. Yeah, that's was true. Was there any? You know, was was it like a riddle? Okay, look, you all are getting it, but he's getting a whole lot more. Just like the favored son got a whole lot more. Yep. So you also uh, just to help you know, because we are American consumers of media, you give a a lot of non-biblical examples like the fedora and the bullwhip in Indiana Jones, which happenstance, I just read an article. I think that whip was sold at auction for like, I mean, I don't know what the number was, but it was like, okay, that's kind of silly. There's a whip in a movie and it gets auctioned off for thousands of dollars. Rings in the Lord of the Rings, mirror in the Harry Potter series, the yellow hat and the curious George book. And again, we associate those objects entirely. I mean, 
the company that made that fedora hat, if I remember, went into it was like nondescript, right? And they became millionaires right. in the next few years because of the number of people that wanted a hat, like Indiana Jones, right? Really, what I'm hoping to do by introducing like a chapter like this is just just kind of giving people a little work in the shallow end of the pool to realize that the Bible is so much richer and deeper and amazing mm -hmm. than we could ever imagine. And I like, I think it's Leon Morris said, it's shallow enough that a child can play in its wake, but it's deep enough to drown an elephant. And I think he was thinking about specifically the Gospel of John with that. But I find I am like a kid in a candy shop now. I'm seeing things left and right over. And it's like, I tell my students yeah. like this, I say, I want you to take your hand out and hit your forehead and to let me know when you have an aha moment in class. Yeah. I have a flat forehead now because I'm even seeing more out of reading God's word. And it's just me. I've, I've done it things the hard way, kind of like Jacob. We're trying to get meaning out of text by just sludging through it, by just allowing to have some basic reading strategy things, things to be on the lookout for. Man, things are popping all over the place. And I find myself less reliant on commentaries because they yes. don't scratch where I'm itching. Because I'm asking well, and, questions within the text. And they're always built on a foundation, typically, of why add one more commentary to the, the book of Isaiah when there's 8,600 out there, yeah. you know? And it's like, so their literary or exegetical or theological presupposition is driving that production. Yeah, back to your object lesson for a second. I still remember, and it was just reading. There was no tools in, in my arsenal, but I was reading through the, you mentioned David and Saul right. and the transition there that whenever you saw David, he, well, not whenever, often he had a harp in hand. Saul had a spear yeah. in hand and you can't miss it. And if you start looking at the word hand in first uh, Samuel, it's striking when the hand appears and what's going on. Yep. And then the other one was the culmination of Esau, when the brothers meet, right. and it's face, eyes, right. hand, over and over and over, right. and the Hebrew really pops off the page, yep. and you see, because the intimacy in the Semitic culture of looking somebody in the eye yeah. with whom you've had a major conflict, and yet it walked away unresolved. Yeah, you know, and so this is just, yeah, and so paying attention to those little what, details, again, that's not the major theme but they help enhance and kind of spotlight and point to the, what the themes are if you understand what those objects are in kind of yes. everyday use. And so is it symbolism? Is it mystical? I don't think that's where we have to go that far. It's just that the Bible authors are selective and what they include is so intentional that we have to kind of tease out a little bit uh, why they give that level of specificity, like putting in these objects in these characters' lives. And so just slowing down and saying, first of all, observing that these objects are present in the text is eye-opening for a lot of people. But then to, to go the next step and say, what is that object helping us to understand about that character? Let's talk about poetry. Yes. You call it poetic diamonds. Yeah. We normally think of poetry in the books of poetry like Psalms and Job and Ecclesiastes. But Embedded in other genre types, especially narrative books, you have these little pieces of poetry that are kind of injected into the narrative. Now, most of the time we're kind of uh, thinking about, you know, that they kind of interrupt the story and let's get back to the action. But in reality, they actually serve as a main kind of punctuation point or exclamation point for the, what the themes of the surrounding narratives are. 
And so these songs, kind of similar to other things like early on, are helpful to kind of understand what the goals thematically are of the biblical authors. A lot of people I've encountered, Jim, don't like poetry. Oh. You know, they, that was I me. mean, yeah, yeah. W- women tend yep. to enjoy poems, maybe not to be, uh, you know, sexist, or whatever. Women tend to have more or of a, a love for it. But I can't tell you when I've done men's and small men's discipleship groups, they don't like poetry. No. They don't get the Psalms. And of course, I love the Psalter. Right. So let me interrupt you there and help out a little bit. I used the analogy in class just a couple of days ago. I hated, we, as a family, we watched Sound the Music growing up every year because it was only broadcast on live TV. And <laughs> you know, sorry. I am 16 going on to, oh man. Oh, you stop, could, stop. You could be in my head all day. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, but the only thing I liked about that film was the scene where they are finding a shot light in the cemetery, trying to look for the Van Trapp family. It's like, oh yeah, give me more of that action kind of stuff. But now that I understand the purpose of poetry and the value that poetry has, I'm falling more in love with poetry. And for our male listeners out there, you need to pay more attention to poetry because it really helps to make the lessons and the themes and the the points that the authors say really pop. So, for instance, in Genesis 1, uh, we have a poetic inset there where the idea uh, male and female made he them and made in the image of God. So that little poetic lyric inset really sets one of the key peaks for Genesis 1. Uh, Chapter 2, we have uh, Adam singing, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Well, that's a peak for chapter 2 because we're talking about marriage, the highest of all relationship gifts that God has given to humanity. And we sing the what I call the blues in chapter 3 because the curse is put in lyric form. Uh, and so we're now singing the blues. So we go from a hymn uh, to a love ditty to a, the blues. And then this is sad. Uh, chapter four, we have another poetic inset with Lamech boasting. I have killed a man for wounding me. I call it gangster rap. And so how these, pus- these musical interludes help to show the themes made in the image of God, marriage is the heightened of relationships, the curse is through the default of disobedience, and then look at how violent mankind is already soon after the fall. And they're singing about it, just uh, again glorifying violence. And again, how far we have fallen from the loftiness of chapter one so quickly in Genesis. Poetry shows it. The other thing about poetry and the way you've explained it, it's so helpful. It's helpful to me hearing you talk through that. But to me, it's an encapsulation also. And living in Music City in Nashville, uh, every song is poetic. And so, you know, uh, most people here prefer country or what's become known as more progressive country, which is almost rock and roll with a twang. But country Mm -hmm. music is all poetry and it tells a story and the lyric and rhyme is so I, I tell people all the time, you can hear a song you like. And after two or three listings, you'll probably know 80% of the lyric. Same right. is true with the old hymnology. Yep. And and that should teach us something about the scripture. So when we come to those poems, although we are quite removed from structure, we don't know, you know, the hills of Moray. We don't know how these things, what it meant to the listener, which is, again, that becomes the Bible student's job to say, what's going on geographically? Why is Armageddon? Why is that important right. in these interludes? So. Yeah, and so that's why I just encourage our our, uh, listeners to just read the first couple chapters of Luke. There's not too much poetry in the New Testament, but Luke's gospel at the beginning chapters contains a number of lyric kind of insets. And you'll see not only is it 
it's really kind of hitting two of my chapters. One is early on, the songs kind of set the themes, but also they're poetic diamonds. They're embedded in the narrative. And they, again, so you have a twofold punch to kind of make sure that you, the reader, know what the book of Luke is going to be really focusing on. And so it's put in the very early material, but it's also punctuated by these poetic insets. And so it's, again, rhetorically strong and helpful for us as readers to try to pick up on what the authors are focusing on. Filters chapter chapter eight, location, location, location. And I don't know why, but early on in my life, I loved maps. Yes. So I was that one geek that was looking in the I was first learning about the Bible. I'm in the back. What are these maps about? You know, most people, they're stuck together. If they still have a real Bible, they never open them. So why is it important that we take a little bit of time and go, what's going on with these locations that we read about again and again? And some obscure for a reason. Yeah. What I like to say is I want readers to view the setting, the location, just as they would a character. Because even though they don't speak like characters do in these accounts, they still communicate. And so there's a backstory, there's something going on, there's a theme, that a thread that they're trying to tap into. And so why does Matthew keep on having mountains? I think there's seven mountains in the Gospel of Matthew. So all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, it's a structuring device, but that location is significant because he's presenting Jesus as a new Moses. And so, you know, we get all bent out of shape when we go to Israel and you talk about the Mount of Beatitudes. So that doesn't look like much of a hill. It's a kind of a slope. But really what we're doing there is geographically, Matthew is, is in a sense, tying tie it to Sinai. Just as a law was given on Mount Sinai for the people, now we have a new law, a new ethic. Uh, And so it's very similar, Jesus gathering a multitude there on a high place. Again, Luke calls it the Sermon on the Plain. So again, we can see there's, uh, there's a focus difference there. But Matthew keeps on talking about mountains because mountains are significant places of revelation. And that was in the ancient world as well. And so paying attention to the scene of a mountain in the Gospel of Matthew is just another way to freshen up your reading. So don't just read the, you know, the sermons of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, but also be cognizant of the location of where these events are taking place, because they're also seeking to have a voice, as it were, to speak to the reader. You mentioned earlier individuals and their association with certain things like Jacob and Wells. Right. And in this chapter, you talk about gardens, wells, mountains. And I know you do this as well in Israel. Tell people you can't move a mountain. You can't move a valley. A stream may change its Well, flow Jesus rate, will move the valley, the Mount of Olives. He'll make a valley there, well, but not... Yeah, no. <laughs> we, I said we. <laughs> yeah, we can't. <laughs> we no, can't right. move them. <laughs> but you can build a mountain, like we go to the Herodian, yeah, right? Herodian, you, can you can build, build one. Yep. Yeah, it's hard, hard to move them, but you can build them. Okay, let's, let's land a plane here, and let's talk about clock management. What in the world are we doing here? Yeah, this is uh, very intriguing, because oftentimes... We kind of are tracking the accounts in these Bible books, and we're not paying attention to how much the authors are speeding up or slowing down the, the text, the accounts. And so what's, uh, what's kind of surprising, a lot of people aren't aware of this, and it's because if you just kind of crunch the, the, the numbers, the focal point of Abraham's life is not his total 175 years. The first 75 years are basically blanked because we don't really encounter him before that. And really the last 75 years, there's very little we know. So it's basically from age 75 to 100. So basically 
Abraham's life is a 25-year period that is the focal point. But then it gets even better because 13 years of those are another blank because from Ishmael's birth to the time he's 13 and Isaac is born, we near we know next to nothing of what happens in those 13 years. So if you really look at it, we're only looking at 12 years of this guy's life. But then you're looking at where is it that we speed up? Where do we slow down? Because there again, it's again the author's intention because if you want to cover a lot of ground, uh, you can speed things up. If you want to really slow down and talk about an event in one day. So, for instance, think about Genesis 22. It happens over the course of uh, less than a week because three-day journey, three-day back, and one day on the mountain. We're really focused on, on that as, you know, one chapter by itself. But then the next chapter is also a big focal point, just on one basic short period of time where Abraham's buying the cave of Machpelah for his dead wife, Sarah. And so we can see how things really slow down and where they speed up. So, you know, just like a coach in a game can, you know, run the four-corner offense at basketball and slow things down at the end of the game or, you know, again, try to preserve a win. So biblical authors can do the same type of thing with how they manage time. And so this just, uh, again, another thing to be on the lookout for, freshen up your reading by just paying attention to the use of the clock within the texts. Again, the author's not going to say, hey, the reason why I'm speeding up or slowing down is dot, dot, dot. But you, the reader, then can begin to use that as a springboard to kind of reflect, okay, okay, if we're spending all this time on one day or a short period of time, there must be something that is really being foregrounded here that I need to at least be aware of and then try to explicate the, the, the reasoning why that might be. When I first read that chapter, my brain went to some of the rather laborious, like Leviticus, for example, highly repetitious, highly prescriptive, and yet it's not necessarily repetitious because there's so many segmented nuances of who this law applies to. This is the priests. This is the congregation. I remember picking up Alan Ross's book, Holy to the Lord, and it's not an easy book, but I remember I I spent probably a year in Leviticus, Jim, because I was so blown away with this pacing and great prescriptive detail. And then you stop every time and go, why is God so particular about all these, you know, holiness. prescriptive ways. Holiness. Yes. That's the thing. And exactly. This is what it means to be holy to the Lord. And then the culmination is you can't do this. No. The best Levitical priest is going to mess up. You cannot do this in the flesh. And that sets up the only way to be holy to the Lord is through someone else who did it. Okay, Dr. Coakley, people are listening to you and me and they go, yeah, it's it's early in the year. Maybe I've started a Bible reading program. I'm already behind. And, you know, we've all said it. We've all heard it. Give them some encouragement about apathy. How do you get back into it? Forget the guilt. Don't give up. But talk to the apathetic man or woman who's saying, you know, it's just so hard. I just can't do it. I don't care anymore. Well, you know, the big thing, of course, for a lot of people is, you know, carving out time to do it. Uh, one of the things I do on a regular basis now, especially on commuting in from the suburbs to Chicago, I'm regularly listening to, you know, MP3s of Bible books. So having it done in an audible format. And that's an easy way. There's so many apps now where you can have the Bible read as you are walking the dog in a neighborhood or whatever, commuting, traveling, uh, doing your long distance road trips on vacation. There's so many things you can do to get that. And that 
accomplishes a couple of things. One, it gets God's word into your into your mind, but also it allows you to listen to large swatches of text in a more shorter period of time. So that way then you're washed over with the, the full context. And so, and that's why really the why I wrote the book, because I was kind of getting there myself, uh, sometimes apathetic towards, okay, it's just a checklist, you know, check off that I read, you know, a chapter of God's word today or a couple of chapters. But now I'm more than excited because I have a reading strategy. Again, not to promote the book, but to get people motivated because I think they want to do it. But when they sit down and do it, it's kind of pedantic or boring. But now if they just uh, follow some of the techniques in this book, the Bible is anything but boring. And it it can be a clear motivator for you to uh, freshen up uh, your time in God's word and to really get more out of it. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer in my own techniques because I've seen time and time again how productive they are in big insights and small insights and to just marvel at this God who put the world all around us and structure and order and beauty is the same God who wove that same structure, order and beauty in everything that he gave us in his written word. Encourage our listeners, just get at it. Just get at it, into it and enjoy it. Dr. James, a.k.a. Jim Coakley, he teaches at the Moody Bible Institute in both graduate and undergraduate programs. His newest book, 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible. All the information about the book is in the show notes. As always, you can purchase it anywhere you order a book online. Jim, thanks for your time, brother. Thanks for your friendship all these years. And I pray God uses this in great ways to exceed your expectations on how it will promote people to get in the Word. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.